You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Hannah B. Clare, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Tessa Thompson, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It's Soraya from Empire, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Hey, this is Jada Pinkett Smith, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, my name is Corey Glover. I'm from the band Living Color, and right now you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. tuning in to episode 148 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. Today's episode is brought to you by Beauty by Design. This episode features the following. The cast members of the new RZA film called Cutthroat City. And it's about a heist set in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. The following features actors Demetrius Ship Jr., Denzel Whitaker, Keenan Johnson, and Tyron Woodley. And our next segment features the cast of the new Warner Brothers film due out August 15th, Crazy Rich Asians, featuring actors Ken Jeong, Gemma Chan, and Aquafina. We hope you enjoy this entertainment-filled episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, BGN 148, Cutthroat City, and Crazy Rich Asians. In the story of Crazy Rich Asians, Rachel Chu is happy to accompany her longtime boyfriend Nick to his best friend's wedding in Singapore. She's also surprised to learn that Nick's family is extremely wealthy and he's considered one of the most sought out bachelors. Thrust into the spotlight, Rachel must now contend with jealous socialites and quirky relatives and something far, far worse, Nick's disapproving mother. The film stars actors Constance Wu, Henry Golding, Michelle Yeoh, Aquafina, Gemma Chan, and Ken Jeong. In this next segment is actor Ken Jeong. Ken Jeong is a stand-up comedian, actor, and former physician. He's best known for playing Ben Chang on the sitcom Community and gangster Leslie Chow in the Hangover film series. He was also the lead in the ABC sitcom Dr. Ken, in which he was the creator, writer, and executive producer. Hey, Ken. Yes. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I haven't seen the film yet, so can you tell us a little bit about who your character is? Oh, yes. Um, I play um, Pei Gwen's father as Mr. Go, 
And he, Paquin, is played by Aquafina, who is uh, Rachel Chu's best friend. Rachel Chu is played by Constance Wu, uh, fresh off the boat. And um, so I play the father of Rachel's best friend in the movie. And uh, we're very, we're kind of new money, uh, we're, we're, as opposed to um, Nick Young, played by Henry Golding, and his mother, Eleanor Young, played by Michelle Yeoh. They are kind of the... Uh, Modern day dynasty in Singapore, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of um, old traditional um, family money. You know, the my family is is very much uh, very tacky new money. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of where we're kind of uh, using contrast to it. But um, so uh, needless to say, it's very com- it's a very comedic role. Um, and uh, but there as at in my character's family, there's a lot of heart where. Um, in the movie, later in the movie, Rachel uh, is distressed and she is feels alone in Singapore and she goes to uh, my household uh, to be with her best friend, you know, played by, you know, played by Aquafina, who is Paquin, who is my daughter, my character's daughter. So, so there's a lot of love in, in a, it's a loving eccentric household, basically, is the best way to describe it. Well, you know, speaking of love, everybody is talking about this movie, and everybody really loves to see that a big-budget film, um, a studio film, has an all-Asian cast. Uh, Do you think that crazy rich Asians will open the doors of opportunity for more films with Asian leads? I do. I think that there is a big potential to have the doors open for other talented Asian filmmakers to have their voices heard, and I think that's why... There's so much excitement and there's so much anticipation behind the movie because of its not only because it's a great movie told by a great director and written by and of the books that are written by a great author and Kevin Kwan, of which really uh, at the end of the day it starts with that source material. I was a huge fan of Kevin Kwan's um, books. I'd read um, my wife and I read Crazy Rich Asians, you know, years before it was greenlit into a movie. Um, but uh, yeah, to have this impact, it's become something that's bigger than all of us and i think all all of us recognize that so as we are uh kind of on the eve of our of of the film's you know wide release uh, it gets emotional i mean it, it, there there's a bit of you 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 realize there's there there's a ripple effect that's coming out of it and it's exciting that's amazing and you mentioned that you you read the book um can you tell us, is the book at all very similar to the film? Yeah. No, I was actually surprised how faithful it was because it hasn't any book and any novel. I mean, even The Godfather, you know, that was that had to be trimmed and condensed. And, you know, um, and uh, from Mario Puzo's book, I think Kevin Kwan was, was very hands-on in terms of uh, approving and, and kind of um, having creative say in, in the movie. And I think that's, that, that's why it became a fatal adaptation of the book um and um and knowing how movies are movies and and you know it's the whole goal is to be a cinematic version of the book you know i think because kevin kwan and john chu work so well together um it was seamless really you know i mentioned before that this is a big budget film and we haven't really seen a big budget studio film with an all-Asian cast since Disney's The Joy Luck Club back in 1993. Right. Why do you think Hollywood is so slow to change when it comes to casting Asian leads in non-stereotypical roles? 
I think that right now we're a part of a bigger movement. If you look deeper into the context of this, Fresh Off the Boat um, has been around for the last four or five years, and that has really kind of pioneered. You know, I think I've, I've been witness um, to the progress that has been made for Asians in film and TV, and I think right now it's starting with film, if that makes sense. So I think there's been a continuum over the past four years um, where even I've had my own show, Dr. Ken, for two years because of this the success of Fresh Off the Boat. So I'm firsthand knows what it means and feels like to be the beneficiary of that. And um, right now what we're seeing in the film world is is that version, except on a bigger, bigger scale. You've done so many comedic films and TV shows, and comedy just seems to come natural for you. Is comedy harder to perform than drama or vice versa? Um, I think that both have its challenges. I think, I think for me personally, and maybe the way I'm wired, comedy comes easier to me. Um, but, uh, when you're doing, I've done some dramatic roles or have not been as, as spotlighted, you know, as, as, as my comedic roles. But, um, you know, I, I, I know that there isn't kind of a, a trope where everyone says, you know, it's much harder to do comedy than drama. But coming from a comedic actor standpoint, it's hard to do drama. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> and, and, uh, to sit there and not be tempted to say a joke or tempted to do uh, an improv that's comedic, you know, to sit there and commit and to trust the word. Um, because when you're typically when you're doing drama, you don't improvise. I mean, when in comedy, especially with the way film comedy is, um, it lends itself to improvisation. And if you can improvise, you're lending more of your personal imprint of that comedic performer. In a drama, not so much. You, It's like doing a play, and you have to really adhere to the word. So that is in of itself. Um, I dare say a lot of comedic actors can't do, you know. So, right. Yeah. Fascinating. Awesome. And my last question for you, this movie is about wealth on a billion-dollar level. Um, so we're talking about crazy money here. <laughs> That's a lot of money. If if a billion dollars was deposited into your account right now, what would you buy? I would try not to buy anything. I think that <laughs> I, I think that um, you know I'm already happy with what I have, and so I'm you know I'm of the mindset where you want to save it for the family and the world. You know if that makes sense. You know I think there um, there can be a, uh, there there can be such a thing as too much money. You know I I think right. that. Uh, I think their wealth at the end of the day is, is in the heart, you know, where you want to maximize your enjoyment with whatever amount that you're blessed with. And I, I think that's kind of, uh, that's how I live my life at least. But, uh, um, you know, uh, but I, I do think that, yeah, if I had a billion dollars, I'd probably buy some more shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Some Adidas, some Adidas uh, Climacools, which are, like, amazing. Yeah, I'd buy some more online, sure. Why not? <laughs> you can just buy Zappos and you're fine. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. A second refrigerator? Sure. Right, I think I'd do right. that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not dumb. I, I wouldn't splurge. I'm not stupid. Yeah. But, yeah, so you can you have that on the record, a second refrigerator and, like, uh, three more running shoes. You know what I mean? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's how I roll. Fans want to know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and eight private jets. 
<laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. You know, just, just one one for each day of the week, and then one that's just like a floater. You know what I mean? So, right, right. Fun. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Ken, so much for taking thank the time you. to chat with us. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank Take you. Care. Bye. Bye. That was actor Ken Jung of Crazy Rich Asians talking about how he would spend a billion dollars on things like Adidas Climacools and private jets. But there's one thing that you don't have to spend billions of dollars for. There's a new product called Beauty by Design, which is our sponsor of today's podcast. I decided to check it out, and Beauty by Design is something that I did not realize I needed until I got it. I have very oily, acne-prone skin. My skin has been through a whirlwind. And if you're someone that wants to step up their skincare regime, it's probably worth checking out. So basically the way Beauty by Design works is they offer these skincare solutions that are curated by online estheticians. You can get a skin diagnosis right from the comfort of your home. You go online, you tell them exactly what your skin type is, what your regime is, if you have oily skin, dry skin, combination skin, all of that information, you plug it in online. And then they send you a customized product just for you and sent and shipped to your home. I decided to try this product, and again, for me, I have acne-prone, oily skin. They sent me cleanser, moisturizer, and serum to help cool and calm down the irritation and inflammation in my skin. And and I have to say, it, it actually worked. It did calm down the acne. The acne is not completely gone yet, but it has decreased it significantly. And Beauty by Design offers a lot of different products outside of just having a moisturizer, a serum, and a cleanser. They also have UV products. And for all of us that have deeply pigmented skin, us black women out there, we need UV protection like it's nobody's business. And let's face it, even though our skin is darker and it may not age as quickly as lighter skin, We still need that UV protection to fight against anti-aging and to fight against skin cancer. So Beauty by Design is something that I really enjoyed doing. Also, what I loved about the product was the fact that you can stay in communication with your online esthetician. So you can text them because once you get the product shipped to your home, you can have a continuous conversation with them about how you're doing. One of the things that I asked my esthetician when I ordered this product is, What should I be eating in addition to putting all of these products on my face? What should I be doing to help with the acne? And she actually gave me some suggestions on foods that I should eat. I did not know that dairy is something that you should stay away from if you have acne prone skin. So I stopped dairy for a while and I did see an improvement in my skin. So check it out. They're more than just getting products. You have someone that through the convenience of your phone And online, you can communicate with an esthetician. You don't have to go out to a spa or go out to some fancy dermatologist and have them diagnose you and do all of these things. When really in the convenience of your own home, you have someone there to tell you what you need. You have products that are customized for your skin. And what I like about these products are they're not harsh. They don't strip away the natural oils in your skin when you're using the cleanser. It has this nice minty smell and refreshing feeling on your skin. So that's something that's very important for me because my skin is very sensitive. Check it out, Beauty by Design. Here Black Girl Nerds, if you decide to order from Beauty by Design, you get 20% off of your first order. That's right, 20% off of your first order. So you go to beautybydesign.com forward slash nerds. That's right, 
go to beautybydesign.com forward slash nerds, use the promo code nerds, and you get 20% off of your first order. This is valid for first time customers only. So if you have not heard about Beauty by Design, or you know someone that needs it, and you've tried it yourself, tell them about it and give them the promo code nerds and they'll get 20% off of their first order. Beautybydesign.com forward slash nerds. And now we bring you back to our Crazy Rich Asians interview featuring actors Gemma Chan and Aquafina. Gemma Chan is a British Chinese film, television, theater, and film actress, and also a former fashion model. She's also appeared in Exam and Paramount Pictures action thriller Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. She stars in the AMC show Humans, which made its premiere back in June of 2015. And next year, she will portray Min Irva in Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. No worries. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm very good, thank you. Good, good. So I haven't seen the film yet, so can you tell us a little bit about who your character is? Oh, um, so I play a character called Astrid. Astrid is the cousin of Nick Young, which is a character played by Henry Golding. And Astrid is probably the exception in Nick's family. She's the only one who is very warm and welcoming and kind to Rachel. Um, she is going through her own difficulties uh, during the film. Her, her marriage is, is in trouble. She is a character that, you know, her nickname is the goddess. Uh, she's <laughs> be a style icon. Uh, she, everyone thinks she has this perfect life, this perfect marriage, perfect family. But um, there's so much more going on beneath the surface. Uh, she's really someone who is struggling to hold everything together. And, you know, for me, that was really interesting to play a character that is, you know, what you see is not quite what you get with Astrid. She's an enigma, and um, she's she's really very real. She's very grounded. Um, you know, she comes from an undeniably wealthy background, but she's not someone who buys into the trappings of wealth. That That's fantastic. I, I think it's interesting that you use um, the term enigma to describe her. How important is it for you to identify with the character that you're playing, and do you share any personality traits with Astrid? It's, I think it's it's always important to to identify with your character, or at least be able to see things from their point of view. Um, doesn't mean you always have to play characters that are necessarily just like yourself, but um, I think you have to be able to kind of get under their skin and see it from their point of view. And and Astrid. Um, you know, there are definitely some parallels, I think. Um, I, can, I can identify with a character that, who, you know, everyone probably thinks has, has this kind of, you know, very charmed, uh, perfect existence. Um, but, you know, they, they don't necessarily see what's going on behind the scenes. And, um, and there's, there's so much more of a story there um, beneath what's going on. And I, I certainly... Uh, identify with the fact that she's a character that probably finds it difficult to ask for help. Um, you know, I can I can see that. You know, there's there's definitely this this desire to protect those around her, to protect them from what's going on and, and I think she's kind of suffered um 
kind of alone for, for um, uh, certainly at the beginning of the film, she's kind of keeping her troubles to herself. You know, Astrid sounds like a, a pretty complex character. I had read an interview that you did where you state that Astrid is slightly ashamed of her wealth. Why do you think that is? And do you think many wealthy heirs and heiresses feel this way? I think it's interesting because there are kind of two different ways you can kind of go with if you come from such a wealthy background. You know, there's there's one option is to go down the route of, for example, Jimmy O. Yang plays this character called Bernard Tai, who is completely over the top, who who kind of, you know, that, that kind of wealth and that privilege has gone to his head and, you know, he's very entitled and very arrogant um, and outlandish because of it. Um, or there's the other way where, um, you know, Astrid is not, not that she's ashamed as such, but she's not entirely comfortable with her position, particularly because she's fallen in love with and married someone from a much lower socioeconomic class, um, and and it's kind of the elephant in the room between them, uh, and it's causing a lot of their, their problems, and the fact that her family has never felt that he was good enough for her is, is a real issue, and it, it's a kind of a, a premonition of what could happen between Nick and Rachel, who, um, you know, Constance Wu and Henry Golding's characters, if they don't address that, that, that issue, if, if, um, if Henry Golding's character never stands up to his family and says, you know, you can't treat my fiancé like this, or she's not as fancy as this way, but um, at that point, but, um, you know, that, then they could end up in a similar situation to Astrid and her husband. Um, and she tries to compensate for it in other ways. Like, she, she kind of, you see her hiding her shoes, you know, hiding her shopping, at the beginning of the film, and, and it turns out that she's, she's not been telling him about jobs that she's been offered, and she, she's really kind of hiding her own light because she doesn't want to make him feel insecure. But, you know, but he, he, can, he can sense that, and so obviously it doesn't work. It, you know, it all comes to a head where he says, you know, you've, I know that you, you, you're doing this, and, um, you know, he feels emasculated by that. So I think it's a really tricky thing, and I think, you know, in a lot of um, marriages these days, you know, there, there are times when... Um, more so than in the past, where the man is not the main breadwinner of the family. He may have a wife who is incredibly successful or wealthier than him or who earns more than him, and that is a tricky thing for couples to negotiate, I think. I understand also that you read the book Crazy Rich Asians. Is it pretty close to the film adaptation, or does the film deviate a little bit? Um, Definitely there have been... Um, changes in the adaptation of necessity because, you know, you're talking about adapting a, whatever, a 300, 400-page book into a film that's an hour and 45 minutes. So there have definitely been, you know, storylines that have been left out or storylines that have been streamlined. Um, but I think absolutely I can understand every single one of the decisions that the, um, the filmmakers have made. And, you know, Astrid in the book, you know, she's a central character and you get a lot more of the backstory in terms of her marriage, her history with um, uh, Charlie, Harry Shum's character, and also, you know, the early years before she became this um, this kind of style icon, uh, there, were, there was a whole section where she was in Paris um, as a young girl, uh, as a young woman, I should say, and, you know, that I think it, it leaves a wealth of opportunity and potential to explore that in future films if we're lucky enough to, to get them. All right, last question. This is more of a fun one. I've been asking everyone this. Uh, this movie is about wealth on a billion-dollar level, so we're talking about crazy money here. 
If a billion dollars was deposited into your account right now, what would you buy? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'd probably buy my mom and dad's house. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would I would make sure my, my you know, my loved ones are, are taken care of. Um, you know, I was asked this question the other day. I've been on a tour around the country with uh, with Kevin Kwan and Jimmy O. Yang, and I said, I was asked this question, and I said, you know, I would buy, because I'm obsessed with dogs, I'd buy a whole load of dogs and just, like, have them, you know, a whole pack of them have them with me. Um, and then, <laughs> and then they, they asked him what he would do if he had all this money, if he was crazy rich. He was like, you know, I would start a foundation for children. I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was like, completely, thanks for showing me up there. Um, so I'm going to take his answer and say that I would start some kind of foundation for, um, for children for the next generation. I'm very passionate about about that you'd want to, you know I think that how do you spend that level of money I think once you're kind of relatively comfortable you know that's what you'd want to do with 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 the ex as well you kind of you put it into kind of medical research or education the humanitarian route is always the best way to go so yeah, thank you <laughs> all right well thank you for your time Gemma I really appreciate it no problem nice speaking to you all right take care bye-bye okay, bye Aquafina, not to be confused with Aquafina, the water brand, is an American rapper, TV personality, and actress. You may have seen her in the Warner Brothers film Ocean's 8, where she was part of the ensemble cast. And in her latest film, Crazy Rich Asians, she plays Paik Lin, a college friend of Rachel Chu. Okay, Aquafina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. Really appreciate it. Of course, big fan. <laughs> awesome, great. I, no, no, yeah, no, I was excited. I was excited. Oh, thank you. So glad to hear that. I know um, one of our journals interviewed you at the Ocean's 8 junket, so it's glad to talk to you mm-hmm. again. Great. Um, yeah, so I haven't seen the film yet, so can you just tell us a little bit about who your character is? So my character is Lynn, who is Rachel's best friend from college. And, you know, she kind of acts as a go-betweener between both the East and West. So to audiences, she's someone that can explain, like, what the hell is going on. Um, and I think that in terms of, like, she's brashly honest and an incredibly loyal friend. And with that, I think the audience wants, like, kind of needs her to, to like, understand what's going on. So she's kind of like, she's been lovingly referred to as, like, the fairy godmother of the story. The fairy godmother of the story. That's awesome. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, while, <laughs> while you were filming the movie, was there any moments where you were just in awe of the fact that you were part of something so rare, you know, filming this movie with a predominantly Asian cast, and I understand there were a lot of crew members um, of Asian descent. Uh, was this something yeah, where all you were just in awe? All of them. That's that's remarkable. Were you in awe of that experience or was it just kind of like business as usual? This is just great. No, I mean, totally. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, as an Asian American actress in in 2018, uh, times are are changing drastically. And I think that if I was an Asian American actress that had been working in the industry for for like 50 years and I was on that crazy occasion and kind of looked around, it would have been more mind-blowing. For me, like, I consider myself spoiled in that way. You know, my last movie was Ocean's 8. 
with a female cast with minorities thrown in there too. And all of the movies that I've done have been very open and very accepting of the fact I was I never played stereotypical characters. So in a way I am very spoiled. But I think something crazy with agents like it was never spoken about. And there was an instant bond, you know, that we had as actors. Um, not only that we were Asian American actors that probably endured similar struggles coming up, but that also were brought up in a, in a certain way. A lot of us were seeing for the first time, so that meant a lot. But I think um, they used to, you know, me and John, John Chu, he, we would hang out all the time, the whole cast with John. And one night he showed me dailies of me acting in a scene um, with all of the other mem- cast members. And I just remember crying, and I don't remember if that was because of, like, from an actor's standpoint or from an Asian-American standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. I really didn't expect to see a movie like this, you know, ever. So wow. I think that I, I can't understand where the emotion comes from, if, if because, like, from an actress or just from someone who grew up in this country with, with very little representation. So it, it's a very emotional experience, and I think, you know, all minorities feel to a certain extent walking out. I know that was the feeling that I had when Black Panther was released, just sure, yeah. all of the beauty of yeah. Wakanda, and, and, and I'm sure that uh, yourself mm-hmm. and, and many Asian Americans that see this movie that come out next week will have that same experience. Totally. I, yes. I read in an interview that you said you tapped into your character and used a lot of your own experience as a rap artist to connect with the role. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I don't know if I said that I used my experience as a rap artist, but I think that Paik Lin, I what I tapped into most is, like, how I treat my friends. And, you know, she's an extremely loyal friend and one that, like, I could use as well. But John Chu, you know, he never said anything specific about the way he wants her to play, the way he wants her to be played, and I didn't really have a plan either. I knew that this was an existing character that existed in books, so you can't let down an audience that has already visualized Hank Lynn. Um, and, you know, in it, I, I think that she's really hard to pin down. You know, like, you can't really tell where she's from. You know what I mean? Like, she's probably the least Asian character I've ever played. So it's been in the movies called Crazy Rich Asians. So, you know, it's, it's she's weird. She's born on the screen, for sure. I don't think you can really get the full scope of her from the trailer. I'm curious by that statement when you said she's the least Asian character that you've ever played. Can you elaborate what you mean by that? Well, I don't think that means, you know, like all of the movies that I played have never accentuated being Asian, but I just find it ironic that in a movie called Crazy Rich Asian, Take Lin is not Asian at all. It just doesn't define her, you know? Yeah. So it's just, it's just ironic. It's just like, you know, there wasn't a need to kind of play that up even in a movie with Asians in the title. And I tend to really not take role that force one to, to play that up. So I've been really lucky in this industry to play roles that literally allow myself to be myself. There were so many locations in Crazy Rich Asians that it was filmed in. Which one was your favorite to work in and why? Um, I mean, there were a couple of different ones. I think that... Um, one of the one of my favorite scenes uh, was was my was the first scene the first time I met Ken Ken Jung, and it's just, it's when you know Rachel comes to our family house, and uh, it was you know the first time I really got to play with like a legendary comedian, and uh, it was like a big epic group scene in, in our house, and um, 
I'll tell you, it's really easy playing a rich person. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of fun. You really can really get into that character really easily. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's easier to play a rich person than a poor person. Um, but also, like, then there was, like, this other thing. Like, Singapore's so lavish. People thought that some of our locations were CGI'd. Um, there's one there's one building in Singapore that's, like, an architectural wonder called Marina Bay Sands. And we were able to film on its rooftop this epic drone scene that actually closes up the movie. And it was, like, one of the last nights of shooting in Singapore with a cast that I knew I wouldn't see until, you know, today, the premiere. Um, and it was, it was a really emotional night. Um, it was beautiful, and I think it summed up our experience with the group in Singapore. Amazing. That's awesome. Um, last question, and this is more of a fun one. I've been asking some of the other cast members the same thing. Mm-hmm. This movie is about wealth, and it's on a billion-dollar level, and we're talking about crazy money here. So if you had a billion dollars deposited into your account right now, what would you buy? Oh, man. You know what? I In a, in a perfect world, I'd probably, like, invest. I'd probably, like, open up a Rob IRA. But realistically, I'd probably just put into an account that it accrues no interest and just let it sit there for a while and just draw from it to you seamless. You know what I mean? Yeah. I probably wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so funny. So everybody's answer has been like, I don't know what to do with that much money. Like I, I wouldn't even know how to begin, how to spend it. So, yeah, but I mean, you're smart. Let you it just, draw interest. And then reality becomes weird. <laughs> so when I with no interest growing because I'm an idiot and that's my real life. So, no, it's good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Cutthroat City is a new film directed by RZA, also known being a member of the hip-hop phenomenon Wu-Tang Clan. The film stars Wesley Snipes, Terrence Howard, Kat Graham, Demetrius Ship Jr., T.I., Denzel Whitaker, Shamik Moore, and Rob Morgan. Journalist Catalina Combs sat down in a roundtable discussion with Demetrius Ship Jr., Denzel Whitaker, Keenan Johnson, and Tyron Woodley. They spoke about the film, what they liked about it, and why it was important for a film like this to get made. Oh, no? Okay, cool. Let's start then. Um, all right. Hi. Um, yeah, so, I mean, loosely, Cutthroat City is about uh, four kids uh, right after Hurricane Katrina. Um, they're seeing the whole city of New Orleans being built around them, and they're seeing the Ninth Ward, the only place being neglected, and the only place not being treated well, and the only place not receiving any money. And these young kids, old. There you go. That's a, that's a true actor right there. Knows so dedicated. Yeah. And these, and these, and you, and you start to see these young kids uh, needing to make money for themselves, and then choosing. Uh, choosing a route that they probably wouldn't have to go otherwise and they start robbing casinos throughout Louisiana um, and that's loosely what the film's about don't want to give too much away yeah we've all been there before <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know when you, high situations you gotta sometimes you just gotta go rob a casino but yep. I think it's also it's like meta, it's metaphorical because it's you know the first things that were there's a line in the film that the first things that were being built right after Hurricane Katrina the first things Harrah's was up right away you know the casinos were up and running and then the places that really mattered weren't ever looked at so it was us kind of like you know sticking it to the man and what was it like working with you know an older crowd who's 
known for their role as gangsters. Like, what did you learn from them on set? Everything. I mean, we just just in not even just as actors, but I think just in like life situations, learning uh, just the way that these people live their lives and and little um, little things that they probably don't think are that important. But when you hear it, you're like, I gotta go write that down somewhere. You know, things that Terrence would say or things that Wesley would say. <laughs> you'd be like. You know, like on voice memo, trying to record these, oh, like, yeah. kind of like, even, even, and, and of course, Riza, like, on top of all things, like, spending a month with him Definitely was just, you know, we'd go out to dinner and he would just, you, you don't, you're, you're not, you want Riza to talk all of dinner. You don't want it to get a word in edgewise mm-hmm. because his stories are so incredible. Um, and you learn, you know, you learn so much by being with him. It's very humbling in that, in that regard because, like, you know, you might call him an OG, an old head, like, but when you, I, I think you kind of said it best, like, when you listen to the stories, like, these are people who created legacies for themselves, and these are people who have also set examples for us, you know, uh, for men of the culture, like, they've represented basically our soundscape of what we were listening to growing up, or either movies that we were watching growing up, so it would behoove us, like, we would be idiots to not listen to their stories, you know? Yeah. Uh, whether whether they play in gangster films, whether they play in martial art films, it really doesn't matter. It's all about the life experience. Yeah, they definitely dropped a lot of game. Uh, Terrence was, was, it was almost as if he used the opportunity um, with having us there to make sure that he shed light on things and, you know, gave us a little bit of game that he could. Because once he was there, like, my whole time on set with him, he was just dropping bars like all day long it was like all right i'm here this is what y'all need me for like we go when it's time to act i'm gonna get to what i gotta get to i'm gonna handle business but for in between takes come here young blood you know what i'm saying come here young brothers let, let me holler at you and, and tell you something it was just a whole lot of stuff um <clears throat> as well as wesley um him giving a, a, a lot of knowledge like workout stuff like because i don't know people i don't know like a lot of people don't know like wesley's still in shape he like yeah. fifty mm-hmm. something years old. Like if he take, he had a white beater on on set. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy to see this dude like still like in tip top shape. Like, and then I'm asking Wesley like, yo, how you, you know, say how you get here and you still like this? And he's like, you know, gave me some game. I think we ended up doing some push ups and some little yoga poses and all type of stuff. Well, it was mainly me? it was mainly the yoga poses. He was yeah. like, I swear by downward dog. Right, right. I swear by. It. <laughs> he's like, he's like, like he's like, look, do downward dog right now. Do it for for thirty seconds. I guarantee you break a sweat. I'm like, all right, let's go. I get up, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've known Wesley for a long time, and the thing about Wesley is what makes him such a great actor, if you know him in person, he's nothing like any other character he's played. He's not Nino Brown. He's not Pootie Tang. He's not Blade. For him to be so different in real life, and when he transformed himself, like, he told me that people are still mad at him from um, New Jack City. Mm-hmm. They, like, legit, real-life mad at him. Um, so I think that you know, RZA, from the scene that I was in, when he was yelling out the lines, I felt like he was an actor talking the lines through. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, if it really feels like he's he's almost living this role, he's living this character, he knows it so well in his mind. And I think that's why artistically as a, as a producer and a rapper, he was able to portray that whole mental image. They had like a cultish following. It's very similar to the Comic-Con, if you want to think about right. it. That was kind of how the, you know, the Wu-Tang fan, uh, fan base was. How was it for you, T. Wood? You know, obviously you've done some acting gigs, but 
kind of stepping into a bigger role here, working with experienced actors. How has it been with the transition? I never want to be the weakest link, you know, and they'll, they'll probably tell you that, you know, it's a man, you sound like you're from New Orleans, Phil. you from New Orleans? Yeah, so yeah, I think, yeah. I think just, um, just not wanting to be the weakest link. We all going to get our chance to, to blow up and be, you know, at the top dog. And you know, the same way I had to do it in, in mixed martial arts, I was, I was the guy that was the training partner. Fly me down to ATT, I used to be a bag of bones. I sparred everybody. I used to spar twice a day. And um, he got to the point where it wasn't my moment yet. And, and I paid my dues. And when my moment came, then it was my time. So acting is no different, you know. And acting, I'm a white belt. I'm growing, getting better, stretching myself. And this is just something different than what I would do in normal films. Like I said before, I can do the tough guy, any. I can do the thug, easy. Um, you know, those roles are, come to me really naturally, but things that don't, I don't want to get a script and get in a position where now I got to cry and I haven't cried in 10 years. So I don't, now I have to do, you know, something super quirky and it's just really not in my, you know, personality. So I'm just trying to stretch myself and um, be comfortable everywhere. I wasn't working with T. Wood. I'm a UFC guy. In case anyone didn't figure that out. <laughs> so I wasn't working with T. Wood. You know, kind of in this role, and you know, working with a guy who's obviously well known for his, you know, the welterweight champ of the world. But now he's kind of stepping into your world. Um, you could definitely tell the energy was there that he put the work in. That's what I would say because I really didn't know what to expect, and um, the role is very much different. From what he's, you know, hey. so what you expect oh, yeah. him to be. Well, it's a, it's a, believe it or not, it's a, it's a, it's a vulnerable right. role. Right, it's very, very it's, it's, a, it's a, it's, it's someone put in a situation where uh, he's, he's scared shitless. And um, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I've, I've been watching his fights for a long time, so it was, it was also interesting seeing him, you know, Way pissing way. his pants a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, he he definitely brought you it. Don't see that waiver. Oh yeah. oh yeah. So I actually want to follow up on that because, you know with your fights, and then you're also being a commentator, and you seem to do really well in front of the camera and with the, you know, just kind of embrace that. Yeah. Is it something you see yourself kind of expanding more into? For sure, I, I try to separate all my categories. Like, Tyron Woodley, the, the father, is different than Tyron Woodley, the podcaster, different than Tyron Woodley, that has his own TMZ show, different than the actor, different than the Fox analyst, and di way different than a fighter, because a fighter, out of all the things I do, that's the thing I do the least. I fight three times a year, maybe. I haven't fought in a year. So if you if you paint one house, that don't make you a painter. Um, I fight because I'm good at it. I fight because you know I use it as a vehicle to open up other doors. But I plan on doing the same thing, being a world champion in acting, in film, in entertainment, in music, and anything that has to do with the art. So I just really, I never, I just never want to be in something to be in it. If I'm gonna be in it, I want to be all the way in. I want to be the best at it. I really respect you diversifying your bombs. You said what? I really respect you diversifying your bombs. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate <laughs> it, brother. Mm -hmm. she, she, she got the joke that was going to come in about the, the Tupac thing, but in all seriousness, like how how is it for you, you know, getting those these new roles to move away from that a little bit? Because I mean, obviously, it was an iconic moment for you to play that role, but I obviously you have other goals as an actor. Right. Um. So uh, that was a wonderful opportunity. It's led me to be here. Uh, so I'm, I'm forever grateful for that experience and for that mark in my career and in my life. Um, but moving past it and giving this opportunity has been beautiful for me because it was a, it's a complete, you know, different thing that I, I got to do. It's it's me breathing life into my own character and uh, being from New Orleans and, and having that and taking on that and, you know, embodying what it's like to be from the, you know, the NOLA culture and, um, you know, just just separating myself and becoming my own person, my own actor, and doing my own thing, and, uh, you know, growing in it.
There's obviously a lot of iconic uh, heist movies out there. Heat, Dead Presidents. Like, what separates this movie? It's a heist movie, but what makes it different? Uh, what makes it different? Hmm. That we're robbing casinos <laughs> and we're young. Yeah. Three, three, we three and a half black guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh -huh. the age, the age and desperate. Well, no, because the heist movies there's always desperation. I think it's I think it's the characters who are telling the story. Right. That and, makes it very different. And not to interrupt you, but it's a relatable story that that something that actually calls it that the you know. Ameri it's an American historic event that happened that led us mm -hmm. to get to this. You know, so, well, so it's, it's also it's that. also not a it's not a it, the story is not about a bunch of thugs who get together and decide to go on heists. It's right. about a bunch of young kids who have grown up together and don't know what else to do, and they're in in a time of need, and uh, it's really to them it's their only choice of getting out and 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 not being stuck in the Ninth War for the rest of their life. Keenan, how, how is fan reception different for a movie like Cutthroat City as opposed to like a man uh, manga fandom like Alita? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a built-in fan base with, uh, with, the, with the manga, but um, uh, I mean, it, both, both receptions have been incredible. Um, yesterday was the Alita kickoff and kind of saw, got to watch people watch, you know, we watched showed 18 minutes of the, the footage and people seemed to love it. Uh, but on, on this side, you know, it's like, you have you have the famous RZA directing you know a film that you know he nailed he nailed the kung fu aesthetic in Man with the Iron Fists and I think that as a director for him to be able to very much like Robert Rodriguez and why I think that they are close friends and Quentin like they don't they don't really they have a style but their style is not one specific way of shooting so it was cool being a fan of Man with the Iron Fists and then seeing how he approached this film. Uh, trying to not, trying to like nail the aesthetic of the Ninth Ward and nail the aesthetic of these like young gritty kids. Um, so yeah, I mean it was, it, it, it was, it's great, it's great to be part of both films and uh, they're both looking great so far. I don't know, I don't know what he did on Alita, but he definitely stands out in this movie for sure. His character is definitely someone that you're going to be captivated by. How did you all become a part of this project? I actually, uh, I heard about it a long time ago. My uh, my roommate at the time, Jared Einson, uh, was uh, one of the producers on the film, and uh, he's sitting right over there. Um, and uh, he brought he brought he brought this uh, character to me and said, "Is this something that you'd be interested in playing?" And it was you know how could you not? And with the with the people that he was surrounding the, uh, the cast with, and I've obviously been a fan of all these guys' work. Um, and I just thought it'd be so fun to spend a month in New Orleans and become brothers and uh, get gritty and, and, and act. It's nothing, there's nothing better. Your answer. Uh, I was kind of like the last man to get the call. I was like the sixth man <laughs> off the bench. Uh, for, no, for no real purpose, really. It was, it was like uh, the producer, same producer, Jared, and also Will, who I'd worked with on another film called Submerge. Uh, they both hit me up, like, literally, I think it was the day before Thanksgiving. And you guys were about to roll into production, and they hit me up, and they were like, yo, man, uh, so we need the heart. We need somebody to come in and make people cry. <laughs> and they were like, do you want to come do this film in New Orleans? And they just started listening to me, the cast, and I was like, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. So, yeah, this is happening, because, you know, it's Thanksgiving, it's the end of the year, things, like, uh, start to 
swallowed down a little, like, you know, dwindled down basically to vacations and whatnot. So I'm thinking the rest of my year is set. All of a sudden, next thing I know, day after Thanksgiving, back to the house, fly out. So. I got um, called by Will, one of the producers. I did a movie called Escape Plan 2 with him. Um, and also did a movie called Office Uprising. That actually came out yesterday. Um, so we did that movie, and then um, he called me about this part. He said, man, I'm going to warn you, man, it's a little different. And I want you to read this first and see if you're comfortable with it. And then um, you know, I just fought not too long ago. You know, Money-wise, I was all right. You know, I wasn't rich, but I wasn't broke. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, do I really want to go out there and do this for – Know, this this particular part and you know in, in film you always got to consider how is this going to impact your career is this going to be something that helps it the certain roles that i don't care what the dollar amount is i'm never going to do those certain types of roles so I, I read it i thought about it prayed about it and i said all right i'll see you i'll see you tomorrow so that's kind of how it happened um for me just to be honest i don't want to lie but uh, <laughs> I got a call, like I got the the email, like to self tape. I believe it was either self tape or come in, and that they had sent it to me. And then I think like a little bit later on, like the day, I got like offer. I was like, oh, well, that was nice. <laughs> and then I seen the names attached to it. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, like yo, don't hesitate, nothing. You know, like don't don't like slow nothing down. I need the paperwork fast. Let's move it fast. Let me sign quick. I'm ready to go. So um, it, it was just amazing. I, I'm so happy like, and excited because it, it came right off of All Eyes on Me. Um, and I had the most amazing experience as far as like my second movie that I could ever have. One cool thing about the movie that when, when I was talking to Will, they were in the building portions of building this movie when we were doing Escape Plan 2. So they hadn't had the cash yet, and they were showing me who they were thinking about using completely different than everybody that's on the panel right now and, you know it was it was good actors but it was just budgeting and raising funds for it and he was telling me the concept of it and what he was thinking about it and then sometimes a, a project stops there it never really reaches the, the point where it hit fruition where you actually get somebody to see the same vision you have and invest that money into that and the, you know it takes one or two big name actors to, to commit because if, if you would have seen a list of actors that you didn't know, maybe you would have thought a second, a second or third about it, right. but when you start seeing people with strong careers and strong names behind it, it started to attach themselves. So more importantly for me, I thought it was dope for me to see this was an idea, like on the smallest little one-page press kit thing ever, and then over time, it's getting better, it's getting better, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. You know, we got people that are interested in it, to see what it's become now. I think this is like a sleeper movie that's going to do crazy numbers. I think it's going to do crazy. I think it's like when you think about like a New Jack City or you think about think about the budget of a Friday or a movie like that, that just because of the energy, the youth and the acting, the, the OGs in there, what they're talking about, New Orleans has had this tax break forever. Yeah. After the hurricane hit, they had the tax break. All the films start going there. People start moving to New Orleans. Nobody did a film about the catastrophe. Nobody really touched on it. So though it was a long time ago, this is going to be the first time that somebody didn't just go and participate in this huge tax incentive and they actually show us tribute and respect and really told the story the way it should be. So I think with those three different categories, I think this movie can do crazy. So I'm just glad I got to do my piece in it. 
and um, I'm going to watch these guys do their thing. <laughs> well, while you were filming in New Orleans, did you talk to anybody that had gone through uh, Hurricane Katrina, like maybe research yeah. or just to mm -hmm. see how they were coping? RZA, RZA thought it, we, we, we met with a, um, a dialect coach because we wanted obviously that was give as much respect. Who, you know, that, had to, that was a, it had to be a very unique, funny experience for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like myself too, but it look, was so, like. So we're, we're playing these kids who grew up in a very poverty, um, uh, rough area. And then we get a, uh, a dialect coach who uh, <laughs> didn't quite meet those requirements. Um, she had a little bit. <laughs> she just, but she just wasn't. She just wasn't right. And I, yeah. I, I, I'm, she, was, she was a great human being, nothing against her. She wasn't the kid I saw. And, no, she wasn't good. And you know, you know, you want to you want to give as much respect to the these characters as possible. And Riza had the brilliant idea of just like we're shooting the Ninth Ward, like let's just hire some guys from the Ninth Ward who like speak the lingo and mm. just. And so we met with these these like three guys who were always on set, born and raised Ninth Ward. Uh, all you know, both houses have been torn up, uh, have been slowly renovating for years and years and years. Um, and he would just, you know, read read your lines, and I'd listen and try to get everything that I could from it. And uh, they were the best dialect coaches we could have ever had. Best the real deal. <laughs> yeah, whoa, whoa. and best travel guides <laughs> at that point. Right. I mean, they showed us around the town, so yeah, yeah they gave us a bunch of little slang. It was it was definitely interesting and funny um, being around those people. Is it was really authentic, you know what I'm saying? You got to feel like, damn, I'm, I'm really a part of this. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's not like me just, like, And they imitating. made us feel really yeah. comfortable, too. Like, I'm sure I'm sure there was multiple times where we didn't exactly hit hit the dialect on, but they would come and, and tell us in a way that was helpful, and um, I think they also wanted what was best for the film, and I think RZA, being the smart man that he is, including the Ninth Ward, and not just saying we're going to shoot a movie here about the Ninth Ward but not include any of you, in the way that you know he we used homes of these you know our uh, uh, the guy who would who do my fade um, he lived um, what was his name again? Uh, scoop scoop yeah, yeah. scoop he he lived in the ninth ward and we filmed at his house we filmed at his house and it was cool just like including these people and including like you know we weren't building any sets mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have the money to but we uh, you know we wanted to, we wanted it to be as uh, as um, can't think of the word. Authentic as possible. Yeah. With with situations like what's happened in Puerto Rico after the hurricane or Flint, mm -hmm. Michigan, like what's it like filming in the Ninth Ward right now? Like, is it still? It's devastating. It's still, oh, yeah. devastating. It's still like absolutely. It's, it's devastating. Crazy. I mean, there was a there was a schoolhouse. Um, you and it was it was it was like the actual film. The second you drive over the the bridge, it just mm -hmm. changes instantly. Right. Like you're downtown. Uh, yeah, it was it's completely Harris different. Is, Harris is, uh, is, is a cathedral. It's massive, the lights and everything. Canal Street is popping. And then, and then you, and you cross the bridge, and, I mean, there's still... I just remember seeing my, my character... Um, I got to choose a lot of the tattoos for my character, and I really wanted, uh, on the doors, they kind of have, like, the statistical what happened in each home. So they'd have... I, I don't remember the exact way they laid out, but it's basically an X, yeah. the top the bottom side side and they all had a, a separate um, uh, meaning of how many people died in the house um, when this house was vacated stuff like that so um, I wanted to have one that kind of represented that I have it on my for, uh, my uh, left bicep but um, 
what was interesting is even being there, houses still have that sign on their doors, mm -hmm. like still. Like they have not even removed that with paint. You still see like these houses that have been run down since Katrina. And that was, re that was really interesting. Yeah. Just, well, seeing, just seeing how it just hasn't, nothing's changed. One interesting thing that I learned was that, um, I think one of the drivers told us is that there was a lot of, so there were houses that were, you know, built up and you could see that they were fixed. You could still see some of the like water marks at the bottom. Mm -hmm. But what you could also see was certain homes was that were, they were like just completely demolished. And that's because people didn't have the money to rebuild the houses. So they just had to like, you know, sell the land or whatever and mm -hmm. just leave it at that. And that was crazy because it was like you see houses and it's like a big gap in between. Yeah. And Where sadly, obviously, used to real, estate, yeah. real estate is an issue there and people aren't buying. So mm -hmm. people can only really try to sell for nothing. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of like, you know, just big potholes of, you know, rubble just abandonment really there's abandonment with cars there's like abandonment uh with like lawns and homes like you'll yeah, just see sure. half of a home blown out wow. and you know it's for us like we'll show up sometimes on a set and a set will be you know made to look like a tragedy there wasn't really a joking matter every day we were on set like it was real for us there was one scene where like literally within the movie, we just walk around and we're just supposed to look at the area. Well, that wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't acting for us. That was us being really in the area and hearing the stories from different people uh, who've either like communities have banded together to either uh, help the homes. Like one of the drivers had told me like, he literally went over to his neighbor's house because nobody was gonna do it. The government wasn't gonna give them any money uh, it was all about a community thing, and the community got together because that's all they had. Okay. Thank, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnack. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.